Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, January the 31st, 2023. It is currently 3.07 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And I have in front of me On Baptism by Tertullian, written somewhere between 197 and 220 AD. That is what I have right here in front of me. And we're going to talk about this once again. If you haven't been listening to our series on baptism in the early church, I think it's been interesting so far. I think I've brought up a lot of valid points. But one of the things we're trying to do in this series on baptism in the early church is look at three historical documents, the Didache or the Didache, depending on which book you're reading, okay, on baptism by Tertullian and the apostolic tradition by Hippolytus. That's what we've been trying to do. We've made it through the Didache because that only took about, I don't know, 30 to 45 minutes because there wasn't much there. I mean, if you look at the Didache, There's not a lot, put it this way, there's a lot missing considering what some people say we're supposed to believe in regards to baptism. A lot of what people say we're supposed to to believe in baptism is completely missing from the Didache. It's not mentioned, and the Didache is written, depending on, again, different arguments, somewhere between 50 AD, as early as 50 AD. Some have it going much later, but I mean, there's just, there's not a lot there in the Didache about baptism. It seems like the person being baptized is someone who has been instructed, someone who can fast, and someone who's baptized into the water. And so we, I think that we, I think we did a pretty good job with that. Then we came to Tertullian on baptism. And we spent about an hour working on it. We made it about three chapters into On Baptism by Tertullian. And, well, not only was it just, how can I say this? I got to be nice. It's Tertullian. It's it's obviously an important document in church history. So I don't want to be dismissive of it. But if I'm being honest with you, There was a part of me that by the time we got done with like the first three chapters of Tertullian on baptism, I was pretty much ready to say, guys, this is utterly ridiculous. Let's not waste our time. And I know I shouldn't be that way, but it was hard to take serious, right? Because, but at the same time, you have to take it serious because as soon as you start talking about baptism, someone's going to be like, well, the early church, the early church, we've got to go with the early church, the early church. We've got to listen to the early, I mean, how dare you not listen to the early church? I'm like, oh, we're going to listen to Tertullian on baptism because he has some pretty wacky things to say there, right? I, I mean, at least. At least that's my feel. I know some people would be like, how dare you, you know, be so dismissive. It's Tertullian. It's, it's his on baptism. It's a, it's a, so important. I mean, it's, it's somewhere between 197 and 220 AD. I mean, come on. You, you can't be dismissive. So on one hand, I don't want to be dismissive because I do believe it, it is important to know what Tertullian had to say. And this is the reason why. Because when people throw out that, that stuff, right? When people throw out that kind of nonsense, well, the early church, everyone in the early church agreed. You can be like, oh, so there was agreement between the Didache and Tertullian? And you really want to go with some of the crazy things Tertullian had to say? 
I mean, come on. But see, if you read it for yourself, then guess what? Nobody can can just take one statement from Tertullian and go, see, 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 this is what the early church believed. I'm like, yeah, why don't you read a couple of chapters before that? All right, when... Yeah, I won't I won't get into everything, but yeah, I mean it I mean, if you listen to the episode we we uh, at church, you know, I was teaching it at church. Everyone was laughing, and to be fair, at least everyone there and they were all looking at copies of Tertullian on baptism themselves. They weren't taking my word for it. They were all looking at it on their phone. And I think all of them were having a hard time taking it serious. Maybe that's not the correct way, but uh, to Maybe you believe our, our our attitudes are wrong, or you may think that we're just not smart enough to figure it out. But I mean, come on, some of it is pretty crazy. Uh, someone, I think someone said something along these lines, and I'm paraphrasing. I'm glad that uh, I uh, that I'm not the only one who thought it was crazy because you know they thought it was crazy, and we thought some of it was crazy. But we're going to continue to work on it at church. We're going to go through the entire what, 28, 29 chapters of On Baptism by Tertullian. We'll be working on that at Victory Baptist Church. But it's Tuesday. I'm not at church. So why am I turning on the microphone? Why am I going live wanting to talk about Tertullian on baptism on this Tuesday, January the 31st? Why? I mean, tomorrow is Wednesday. I'll be at church. I can talk about Tertullian then. Well, because I want to kind of add a a special episode, something to supplement what we're doing. Because this is what bothered me. And I want you to think long and hard about this. Within the evangelical world, even within the reformed world, um, it, it doesn't matter, really, on all, all, pretty much all different theological streams within Christianity, maybe even sometimes within the, I, I can't be as dogmatic about how a charismatic would approach it, but it's very common within the Christian world, let's put, state it that way, that if you asked about how to understand the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, they will, typically someone will look at you, they will sound very pious, they will sound very authoritative, and they will say something like this. Well, it's easy to interpret the Scripture. You interpret Scripture with Scripture. You compare spiritual with spiritual. You just compare Scripture with Scripture, and then you can figure it out. It's not that difficult. It will, they will almost sound... They will sound almost condescending. Like if you're like, hey, I'm not... I'm having a hard time understanding this. They're like, what's the problem? Just compare Scripture with Scripture. But I've seen a lot of what people refer to as comparing Scripture with Scripture. And I just got to be honest with you. (laughs) I have no idea what people are doing. People say that with such confidence. And then it's just like, well, see, this verse uses this word. Over here, the same word is used. So clearly, they have to be connected. And you're like, well, wait a minute. These are written... You're connecting two passages that are separated by different authors, written to different people, sometimes maybe even separated by a thousand or years or more. And you're like, no, 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 no. They link together. Are you sure they link together? They're written for different purposes by different people to a different audience (laughs) at a different time. Are you sure they're correlated? Now, listen, there are times where you can connect those kinds of passages. Why? Well, because the New Testament will make a reference to that Old Testament passage. 
So then you immediately know, oh, wait a minute, they're using it. Now, sometimes, even then, how New Testament writers use Old Testament passages, that's a source of much study and difficulty in and of itself, because sometimes the way New Testament writers use Old Testament passages leave us perplexed, confused, and we're like, what in the world are they doing? But we all have to hit the brake a little bit on Christians just running around. Compare scripture with scripture, and they will just link two scriptures together that you're kind of like, I don't know why you're doing that. I don't know how you're doing that. I don't even know why you think that conclusion is based off those two, two passages, but people do it all the time. Just because they hear a phrase, they hear a concept, and without really even understanding the concept, they just start running around, linking scriptures together, saying, look at me, I prove my point. You don't know what you're talking about. But there has to be much consideration when linking scripture together. Right? There has to be like what was what was, for example, each passage must be understood in its context. Okay. What was that passage about? Who was it was written to? What was going on at the time? Who wrote it? Like, like, and okay, now over here, this passage, what was its purpose? Who was it written to? What was going on? And once you understand the context of both, sometimes you'll be like, well, I don't know if these are really, I don't know if we can link these together. But I feel like there's a lot of Christians out there who seem not to have ever uh, been instructed in how to do it. They just, and, and, and it's so frustrating because when you try to talk to someone, you're like, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's almost like you can't get three words out because they're like, you don't know how to compare scripture with scripture. You don't know what you're doing. And it's like, or you are disguising your lack of actual hermeneutical understanding just through being loud, obnoxious, and arrogant, because it doesn't mean that those passages are linked together. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because I feel Tertullian on baptism employs some really questionable hermeneutical techniques. And I think this is a very fair argument. I think this is a very fair criticism of the, of the early church fathers. Look at how many of the early church fathers handle scripture very much allegorically. There's no way to get around that. Sometimes you're just kind of like, what in the world is that? And I think that that's a fair criticism. I don't think it's unfair to say that. Look, sometimes the way they use scripture is mind-blowing. It's just, it's mind, it boggles the mind. It confuses me because you're like, I, like what, what scripture are they referencing there? And they'll just grab like a phrase and then they, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, if anyone's read the church fathers extensively, you know what I'm talking about, right? And I think sometimes we, we overlook that, but I couldn't overlook it at church on Sunday night when we were reading, uh, on baptism by Tertullian. I just could not, I couldn't get away from it. I just couldn't, I could not get away from it. And I was perplexed. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to just take about two chapters this afternoon. I'm going to go back and read through them again, hopefully a little better than I did Sunday night. I'll go through slowly. But what I want you to listen for is what scriptures he's not quoting, right? 
And he's trying to make a point, but you would think these are the scriptures he would quote. Now you have to look at the time, right? 197 to 220 AD. We don't really have a completed New Testament canon, right? We don't have an agreed upon canon at that time. So maybe that's the reason why. Maybe certain of the letters have not been widely widely spread and people are utilizing them. Whatever the case may be, but look at sometimes what scriptures he's not referencing. What's, but what's even more baffling is the, is the scriptures he does use in order to try to make his point in regards to baptism. It is baffling, but it shows you, in my estimation, that Tertullian on baptism, at least the first couple of chapters, could almost be utilized in our hermeneutics class, saying, guys, this is what you don't do. When we talk about comparing scripture with scripture, this is not what we mean. This is the wrong application of that concept. Again, I think we have to understand each scripture individually first in its proper context, historical context, its textual context, who wrote it, to whom it was written, and why was it written. Then another passage that we may think has some connection, we have to understand it once again, and its historical context, its textual context. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? What was the purpose of its writing? And then go, wait a minute, these passages are have, they're, I don't know if we can link these together. And I think it's reasonable to ask that question. But, I'm telling you, it's just so weird the way Christians have so grabbed onto a concept. But I don't think they've grabbed onto actually how to understand it. And I think part of the problem goes all the way back into the early church, because I have no idea what Tertullian is doing here. So are you ready for a little a little Tertullian on a Tuesday, January 31st? Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Tuesday afternoon. I'm opening up Tertullian on baptism, and I'm going to chapter two of Tertullian on baptism. It's easy to find this online. It's free. Everyone should read Tertullian on baptism. I don't care what view you hold on baptism. You should know. And you should also make sure that when you tell people, well, everyone in the early church thought this, just remember some of the things Tertullian had to say, okay? Just remember that. And remember what Tertullian is saying is completely absent and is in no way present in any way, shape, or form. It's not even alluded to. It's not even hinted at in the Didache. The Didache or the Didache, again, depending on what. I've gotten books that give you, pronounce it Didache. And I've got other books that say, no, pronounce it Didache. So whichever way, the point is, it, it they're, they are, it's almost like they're not even in the same unit. I think someone in, in at my church on Sunday night said that. It's like they're not even in the same universe. It's like they're talking about baptism, but there, there, there is like what has happened between, say, 50, 70, even 100 AD to 200 AD. Something dramatically had changed. Baptism had started really formulating into something different, especially because the Didache would not ever even recognize this language. But here we go. Chapter 1, Tertullian really kind of gives his purpose for writing. There was a Gnostic sect that had infiltrated the church and the female teacher was basically trying to destroy baptism, all right? 
And so Tertullian wants us to understand baptism is essential. We cannot survive without it. You know, it basically, it's it's how we get spiritual life. He, he obviously sees it in a very sacramental way and a very regenerative way, like baptismal regeneration. There's no way to get around that kind of language. But then we come to chapter two, and now he's going to start trying to make an argument for why like a biblical argument for why we have to believe baptism basically is essential for salvation, why it must be defended, and we can't allow the Gnostics and this female teacher, in a sense, to rob us from it. Because if you take the water away, the fish, Christians, will die. She's the viper. Vipers like dry, arid spaces. But Christians, we are fishes and we without water will die. That's basically, again, using a very allegorical approach to make his argument, to make his polemic. But in chapter two, he wants to to see something. Here we go. The very simplicity of God's means of working, a stumbling block to the carnal mind. So what he wants us to understand is that God works in a simple way, and it's always a stumbling block to the carnal mind. So why some people won't see baptism as being salvific or regenerative or the ways he would describe it as a sacramental way, he says it's because we have a carnal mind and we just don't understand. Let's see how he, he articulates this argument. Here we go. Well, but how great is the for- force of perversity for so shaking the faith or entirely preventing its reception that it impungens it impungens it on the very principles of which the faith consists. All right, so that this is a very perverse and horrible way that someone would come and try to attack this concept based off the very principle that faith is based on itself. So he's very he's very much saying he's attacking those who would attack baptism. All right. There is absolutely nothing which makes men's minds more obdurate or stubborn than the simplicity of the divine works which are visible in the act when compared with the grandeur which is promised thereto in the effect. So that from the very fact that with so great simplicity, without pomp, without pomp, without any considerable novelty, of preparation, finally, without expense, a man is dipped in water and amid the utterance of some few words is sprinkled uh, and then rises again, not much or not at all the cleaner, the consequence attainment of eternity is esteemed the more incredible. All right, let me try to explain what Tertullian is saying. From the carnal mind's perspective, we see a person Dipped in water. Now he 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 has he tries to ex- he describes it this way: someone is dipped in water, then a few words are uttered, and we would we would think that what he's referring to in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is sprinkled. So I don't know if this seems to imply that there was a dunking and a sprinkling. I'm not sure. Okay, but then but then he says what we see it was when the person comes out of the water as he as he describes it. Oh, is not much or not at all the cleaner. In other words, there, he's not he's not cleaner necessarily physically, right? His body maybe a little bit more, but he's not really cleaner because there's no washing going on. He just gets dipped in the water and comes out. So he's not really cleaner, maybe a little bit, but nothing of significance. 
So that's what we see. But even though we don't see anything grand, anything that seems amazing, it's just someone putting in water and coming out wet, right? Nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing amazing that seems to be happening. He says, we missed the point, according to him, that they, they may not come out all the cleaner, but the consequent attainment of eternity is esteemed the more incredible. Like, hey, we may not be able to see it, but something amazing did happen. It's just not, we just don't see it. We don't, we don't understand it. It's not visible. Okay. Now, he continues. Is, uh, okay, the, the, consequent atta- the consequent attainment of eternity is esteemed the more incredible. I am a deceiver if, on the contrary, it is not from their circumstances and preparation and expense that idols, solemnities, or mysteries get their credit and authority built up. O oh, miserable incredulity, which quiet deniest to God his own properties, simplicity, and power. And he's like, hey, wait a minute. We Some people were out there and give this kind of power and things to an idol. Well, how dare you not say that God, as he says, that you would deny God uh, his own property, simplicity, and power. If idols can have these things, well, then obviously God can. And God can have his own, again, using his exact words, I don't want to uh, miss, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote him. God can have his own uh, properties, simplicity, and power. What then? Is it not wonderful too that death should be washed away by bathing? But it is the more to be believed if the wonderfulness be the reason why it is not believed. For what does it behove, behove divine works to be in their quality except they be above all wonder? We also ourselves wonder, but it's because we believe. Now, what he, again, what he's trying to demonstrate, I know it's wordy, and you got to really try to parse each statement, but what he's saying is, look, you give all this power to an idol, but what about God? Now, God can do something incredible without it look, without us being able to see it, without us being able to understand it. But by faith, we can see it. By faith, we can understand it, right? Hey, see, if we have faith, then we can see that baptism is doing more than just making someone wet. It's washing away their sins. It's they're attaining eternity. That there's some salvation is occurring. That is his argument. Please note, he's not quoting any scripture in any way, shape, or form. He goes on to say, we, uh, see, we also ourselves wonder, but it's because we believe. See, the reasons we wonder, the reasons we, we see wonder in this is because we believe. That, that's that's be the reason we see it. And crudility, on the other hand, wonders but does not believe. For the simple act it wonders at as if they were vain. The grand results as if they were impossible. See, it's the it's basically the carnal mind, and we're like, I, I don't see it. I don't understand because we can't see it because we don't have enough faith. We're, we're seeing things the wrong way. And he says that we should be able to see that when someone is put in water, this magical transformation is occurring. He goes on to say, and grant that it be, just as you think, sufficient to meet each point is the divine declaration which has forerun. 
The foolish things of the world hath God elected to confound its wisdom. All right, now please note here, he's quoting 1 Corinthians 1, 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Let me read it. See, this is exactly what I'm referring to here. All right, he's going to try to pull out a scripture to prove his point. So he goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Now, what he is saying is 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through basically 29. He's making a reference to that scripture. See, this proves the power of baptism because it appears foolish, but see, that's God has chosen the foolish things. God has chosen the base things. Now, the point is, as 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, in any way, shape, or form connected to baptism, is it referring to baptism? Does it connect it to baptism in any way, shape, or form? Now, he, it may have a principle, but the point is he's saying, hey, this, this demonstrates it because, see, baptism looks foolish. Because it looks foolish, it has to be then supernatural because it appears foolish. And remember what scripture says, God has chosen the foolish things. Now, let me go back and read this again. And grant that it be just as you think sufficient to meet each point is the divine declaration, which is for one. In other words, hey, here's, here's what we need. Here's the sufficient proof that we need. The foolish things of the world hath God elected to confound the wisdom. And the, and the things very difficult with men are easy with God. For if God is wise and powerful, which even they who pass him by do not deny, it is with good reason that he lays the material cause of his own operation and the, and the contraries of wisdom and of power. That is in foolishness and impossibility, since every virtue receives its cause from those things by which it is called forth. So he's just making an argument. Hey, God chooses foolish things and anyone looking at baptism may perceive, well, nothing's really happening. The person came out of the water. They're not even really cleaner, but hey, 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 what, what? Tertullian wants us to understand they have attained eternity. They have, their sins have been washed away. And that, that's all, that's the only scripture that's alluded to in that entire chapter. Now, 1 Corinthians 1.27 does present a principle. There's no question about it, Right? What looks foolish, God has chosen the foolish to confound the wise. But is that exactly what he's referring to here? Now, if you go back to verse 26, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, but many noble are called. Hmm. Now, it seems that Paul is re referencing people here. God didn't call the mighty. God didn't call the noble. He didn't call necessarily the wise after the flesh. No, 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 no. He chose something else. He chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 
but of him are ye in Christ Jesus. See, what he, he's comparing, comparing us as a, or we'll go to put it in its historical context. Hey, the people at the church of Corinth, who clearly did not look the wisest, <laughs> did not look the mightiest, definitely looked foolish, definitely looked weak, definitely were involved in sin and stumbling and falling and fighting and division and getting drunk and suing one another and dying during the Lord, all the crazy things that was happening in that church. God chose those weak things to confound the wise and the mighty. This is more a reference to people, right? Not baptism. And you say, well, the principle may apply. Well, the principle may apply, but you can't just take this and just immediately connect it and go, hey, this proves baptism is regenerative and sacramental because, hey, God chose the foolish things to confound the wise. That is, that's not, that's not a good cross-reference. That's not, but that, that's just one example. Now let's go to the next chapter. Chapter three of Tertullian on baptism. Here we go. And again, I apologize because sometimes the, the it's very wordy. So trying to go through it quickly, it, it would be better to go through it almost sentence by sentence, but it's the best I can do. Here we go. Chapter three, water chosen as a vehicle of divine operation and wherefore its prominence first of all in creation. All right, so. Here's what Tertullian's going to do. He's going to try to prove that baptism does this amazing thing, that we attain eternity, that sins are washed away. It does this mighty work. And he's going to make his his first stand, his first biblical argument by looking at the word water. Because see, baptism involves water. So now he's going to use, he's going to go to scriptures that use the word water. Now, this is a hermeneutically questionable practice right from the start. Yes, there's water in baptism, but that doesn't mean every passage that mentions water proves or is connected to the subject of baptism. They're not connected in any way, shape, or form. Hey, look. This passage mentions water. Well, where, well, clearly it has to be a connection or a picture or an allegory of baptism. That is not how you do hermeneutics. Just because water is in both doesn't mean they are connected. Look at what he does here. It's absolutely crazy. Here we go. Mindful of this declaration as of a conclusive prescript, we nevertheless proceed to treat the question how foolish and impossible it is it to be formed anew by water. All right, so he wants to deal with the idea that anybody would say how foolish it is to say someone is born again basically by water. How foolish is it to say that you are regenerated, that you are saved because of water? He's like, no, no, no. We're going to answer that question. We're going to answer that question. Well, let's see how he proceeds to answer this question or to answer that, that criticism or to answer that charge. All right, here we go. This is crazy. All right. In what respect pray has the material substance 
merited an office of so high dignity. In other words, why, why should water be given such high dignity? The authority, I suppose, of the liquid element has to be examined. Why does liquid, why does water, I have water right here, why, why does it have some dignity? Why does it have some authority? What is it about water that has this dignity, that has this authority? That's what Tertullian is going to try to explain. This is what he's going to say. All right, here we go. And he says, the liquid has to be examined. So he, he supposes that, okay, to try to figure this out, we've got to look, we got to look at the liquid. We got to look at the liquid right here. Can you hear it? I'll put the cap back on so I don't splash water all over the place. There's something in this liquid that has to be examined. All right. This is what Tertullian is saying. Let, let's see what he says here. All right, here we go. This, however, is found in abundance. And that from the very beginning. So he says, look, look, it's easy to do. I've got a Bible. I got, uh, well, you know, the Old Testament scriptures, primarily what he's getting ready to reference. Hey, I've got scripture and scripture talks about water. So I'm going to connect water with baptism. Even if the passage has nothing to do with baptism, if it mentions water, I'm going to connect it to baptism. And this, to me, is the where the whole idea of comparing Scripture with Scripture can be shown to be abused, and people go crazy with it, and Tertullian is doing this early in church history. So here, here's what he's going to do. He wants to prove to us the dignity and the authority of the liquid, of the water. And here we go. However, I can do this because it is found in abundance that from the very beginning, for water is one of those things which, before all the furnishings of the world, were with God in a yet unshapen state. In the very beginning, saith Scripture, God made the heaven and the earth, but the earth was invisible and unorganized, and darkness was over the abyss, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. Now, immediately, he's like, see, 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 we've got a connection. The spirit was hovering over the waters in Genesis. That has to have something to do with baptism. That's his hermeneutic. Now, if anybody's going to, we need to go to the early church and listen to what they have to say about baptism. We're going to adopt this as a hermeneutic. Genesis is not saying anything about baptism. Baptism is not even... And, and, and it's not even being considered, but this is what he says. All right, here we go. <laughs> this is so crazy. The first thing, oh man, which you have to venerate is the age of the waters in that their substance is ancient. The second, their dignity and that they were the seat of the divine spirit more pleasing to him, no doubt, than all the other than existing elements. So according to him, because of the way Genesis is written, you need to venerate the age of the waters because their substance is ancient. And you must see the dignity of the water because they were the seat of the divine spirit, meaning that water was more pleasing to him than all the other elements. Because the spirit hovered above the waters, 
Well, then see, he draws the hermeneutical conclusion. Well, then clearly he liked the water better than the other things. So see, there's something about water. There, there's dignity. There's authority in water. This is the hermeneutic that he's using. All right, they go on to say. Um, so we have to venerate the age of the waters. The second, their dignity, because the water was more pleasing to him than all the other elements. Then he goes on to say, for the darkness was total thus far, shapeless without the ornament of stars, and the abyss gloomy, and the earth unfinished, and the heaven unwrought, water alone, always a perfect gladsome, simple material, substance, pure in itself, supplied a worthy vehicle to God. So water turned out to be the worthy vehicle to God. What of the water, what of the fact that waters were in some way the regulating powers by which the disposition of the world thenceforward was constituted by God? He's almost asking that in the question. What, what of the fact of the, now he's saying, what of the fact that, that the waters were in some ways the regulating powers by which the disposition of the world thenceforth was constituted by God? Hey, it's the waters. What if that's true? If that's true, then clearly you can see why water could wash away sin and give someone eternal life. He goes on to say, for the suspension of the celestial firmament in the midst, he caused by dividing the waters. The suspension of the dry land he accomplished by separating the waters. After the world had been hereupon set in order, though through its elements, when inhabitants were given it, the waters were the first to receive the precept to bring forth living waters. Water was the first to produce that which had life. Now he makes the claim, it's water that brought forth life. Water brought it forth. It was water that brought forth life. Wait a minute, was it water or was it God? What brought forth the life? He's making the hermeneutical argument that, hey, the reason water gives spiritual life is because water was the first thing to give physical life. But is the text saying that it was water? Or does the text say that it was God? It Didn't life come about because God spoke it? In fact, he, he gave credit for the waters bringing forth the dry land. But look at the, how the text actually reads. Genesis 1.6. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together under one place and let the dry land appear. Tertullian is giving the, the power of the waters. It was the waters that did it. No, it wasn't. The, it was God who did it. It wasn't. The water was obeying God. Now, you, that to me would be a better way of phrasing it. See, God uses water. And because God spoke to and use the water, God later on speaks to the water and uses it to wash away our sin. Like, that would be a better way of arguing it. But Tertullian basically wants us to see the dignity and the authority of the water, of the liquid itself. 
Then look, look at what, and then uh, look at what, what happens here. And then God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he seas and God saw that it was good. Now, now look what happens. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so God. So did earth bring forth plant life? Well, then why wouldn't you say earth brings forth life? And the earth brought forth grass, but it was God who said to let it. God is the one who caused it to happen. All right. Then, uh, then, and, and then, uh, see, we go to the, I think verse 20, I think it's the fifth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature, uh, moving creature that hath life. Didn't God speak it into existence? Tertullian wants us to think it's the, the waters who did it. The waters brought forth life. So the water could bring forth spiritual life, but it's God who brought forth the life. He brought forth life, plant life on the earth, and he brought forth life in the waters. Tertullian's like, no, no, no. Just focus on water, 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 water. That's, that's his hermeneutic. It's really crazy. All right, he goes on to say, all right, um, so he's talking about the dignity, all right, then he goes, and I'll, I'll read this whole statement again and see how far back I want to go. Um, I'll just go all the way back. The first thing, oh man, which you have to venerate is the age of the water and their substance because their substance is ancient. The second is the dignity that they were the seat of the divine spirit, more pleasing to him, no doubt, than all the other existing elements. I don't know how you can say that somehow the uh, God was more pleased with water than all the other elements since he made everything. And didn't he say everything was very good? But okay, all right. For the darkness was total, uh, so then he goes on, uh, was more pleasing to him, no doubt, than all the other existing elements. For the darkness was total thus far, shapeless without the ornament of stars and the abyss gloomy and the earth unfurnished and the heaven unwrought, uh, unwrought, Water alone, always a perfect, gladsome, simple material, substance pure in itself, supplied a worthy vehicle to God. What of the fact that waters were in some way the regulating power by which the disposition of the world thenceforth was constituted by God? For the suspension of the celestial firmament in the midst he caused by dividing the waters. Now, they do. he is giving God some credit there. So just to be fair, uh, the suspension of the dry land, he accomplished by separating the waters. But see, it's not the water doing anything. It's God doing it. All right, but all right. Um, the suspension of the dry land, he accomplished by separating the waters. After the world had been hereupon set in order, though through its elements, when inhabitants were given it, uh, the waters were the first to receive the precept to bring forth living creatures. Water, and this is where it gets weird. Water is the first to produce that which had life, that it might be no wonder in baptism if water, if water knows how to give life. So he's saying that water is the thing that gave the life. It was God that spoke the life into the water. It wasn't that the water produced the life. So immediately you would start questioning Tertullian's entire argument, especially his hermeneutic. Um, for was not the work of fashioning man himself also achieved by the aid of water. So now he's going to say, hey, 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 hey. Even when man was created, it was by water. And you're like, wait a minute. Adam was created by the dust of the earth. No, 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 or through, through the dust of the earth. No, 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 no. Water was involved. This is, this is Tertullian's argument. This is so crazy, All right? This is what he says. 
suitable material is found in the earth, yet not apt for the purpose unless it be moist and juicy, which earth, the waters, separated the fourth, fourth day before into their own place, temper with their remaining moisture to a clay consistency. If from that time onward, I go forward in recounting universally or at more length the evidence of the authority of this element, which I can adduce to show how great is its power or its grace, how many ingenious devices, how many functions, how useful an instrumentality it affords the world, I fear I may seem to have collected rather than the praise of water than the reasons of baptism, although I should thereby teach all the more fully that it is not to be doubted that God had made the material substance which he had disposed throughout all his products and works, obey him also in his own peculiar sacraments, that the material substance which governs the terrestrial life acts as an agent likewise in the celestial. Now, he even acknowledges that, hey, he could go on and on and on and on to show the power and the dignity and the authority of the liquid. Now, he does see God is involved in it. He does, but at times, he, he, at times he almost leaves that. But please note, what does any of that have to do with baptism? What does any of that have to do with baptism? What I want you to see is this is the danger of Scripture with Scripture. I'm not saying that we should never compare Scripture with Scripture. I'm saying just because, well, baptism has water, and over here in Genesis it mentions water, they have to be connected. And look, God created man from the dust, but that dust, it had to have moisture in it because the waters were separated from the dry land. So it had to be, as he says, moist or juicy. It had to have water. So really, uh, Yes, uh, well, uh, dust in Genesis translates dry earth. Now, the, the Hebrew word there for dust, if you look it up, can mean mud. It can mean mud. It, it does have the possibility to mean it. I think if you look at uh, where that occurs, um, Genesis 2, so, uh, and I'm refer I'm referencing someone who's uh, saying something in chat. Um, if see here, and if we look for, where do we have it? See, here we go. Okay. Uh, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. That's Genesis 2, 7. I'm going to look at it from a number of translations. But but the point is, even, the point is, it that has nothing to do with baptism. That's the main point I, I want to, to drive home. But let's go here. Genesis 2, 7. Genesis 2, 7. Uh, most to see dust, 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 uh, dust, 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 dust of the earth. Uh, the Lord took some soil from the ground, contemporary English. Uh, now the Dewey Reem says slime of the earth. See, so trying to kind of go maybe with, I don't know, it was moist. Whatever the case may be. Uh, okay, all right, hang on. Someone, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up in the uh, Blue Letter Bible app. 
because you may be right. I, I thought when we looked it up on Sunday night, we verified this, but hey, let's 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 double check our work. Genesis 2, 7. Genesis 2, 7. And let's see here. And and form the Lord God man of the dust. Right? The he oh wait, you may be right. I don't know what people were looking up. I think you're right. Oh no, here we go. Strong's definition. There's where mud comes in. Strong's definition. Here's the Hebrew word. Strong's H six thousand eighty three. Afar. 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 And Strong's definition of afar is dust as powdered or gray, hence clay, earth, mud, ashes, dust, earth, ground, mortar, powder, rubbish. Dry earth is its outline for biblical, outline of biblical usage starts with dry earth, dust, power, ashes, earth, ground, mortar, rubbish. Dry or loose earth, debris, mortar, or, or, or. And the outline of biblical usage doesn't have mud, but Strong's definition allows for mud. Uh, Brown driver Briggs lexicon, dry earth dust, literally dry loose earth. Um, let's see here. Yeah, so even if you even if you allow that mud could possibly work, like mud could actually be that that the Hebrew word could refer to mud. It seems clearly it that almost all this the resources would say no this is dry earth it's loose soil it's 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 dust it's it's uh powder it's ash it's it's uh dry loose or or uh, earth that type of thing that type of thing i'm trying to look over at the the ipad to make sure i get them all right that that seems to be the the focus so even his argument is is pretty weak but you can see why he has to go there right well wait a minute i'm showing you that life comes from water so I'm showing because his argument is life comes from water and because life comes from water, clearly then spiritual life comes from water. Now, again, he's drawing uh, the main thing I want you to see is you can't connect the water in Genesis to baptism. There's no hermeneutical reason to connect this other than water is used in both. And just if, just as you can give me passages that show water gives life, I can turn around and show you, um, I can, uh, I can also show you that water is used to destroy life. Genesis 6, Exodus, where the Egyptian army is drowned. So like, you know, you can say, well, water gives life to, I, I don't know how, I mean, the point is no matter what you try to say, they can come back and try to make a different argument. And and someone says, sorry, uh, not baptism. Right. I mean, this this has nothing to do with baptism. That's the main thing I want you to see. This has nothing to do with baptism. Nothing at all. There's nothing in Genesis about baptism. And he's trying to draw the correlation, which calls into question his entire hermeneutic. I'm going to prove baptismal regeneration by seeing how water is used in Genesis 1 and 2. And wait a minute, wait a minute. I've made the argument that water gives life, but wait, I got this Adam problem. He's created from the dust of the ground. I know what I'll do. That dust had water in it. It was muddy. It was, it was... Moist, or as his word, it was juicy. There we go. See, that proves it. Well, by that argument, then we can just baptize people in mud. Right? We just baptize them in mud? Just put some mud on them in the name of the Father, Son, of the... No, no, no. Oh, no, that don't work. No, no. Okay, wait a minute. Well, I thought it... I thought, 
but it's just bizarre to see that that's the hermeneutic that's being used. And my point is, is sometimes it's just amazing how people, look, I am, I'm all for everyone should read the church fathers. Everyone should read the church fathers. Everyone should be a student of church history. I talk about it over and over and over. Every church should be teaching church history every chance they get on a regular and consistent basis because the people need to know the past. But here, but here's what I don't like. Hey, 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 hey. When you disagree about, say, baptism, well, the early church, the early church, the early church, the early church. And you can say, yeah, the early church that talked about that Adam was created by moist and juicy mud. So somehow that proves that water gives life and connect that to baptism. Yeah, that we're going to go with the early church that made that kind of wacky claim and use that kind of weird Bible hermeneutic. Yeah, okay. Come on. Now, I got no problem reading Tertullian. I got no no problem listening to him and trying to understand. And and I and I do feel for him because if you look at the place he's in, look at that time frame. You know what 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 scripture does he have available to him? I don't know. I just know that if I was getting ready to make an argument, I don't know if I'd be using Genesis and trying to argue that the 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 dust that God used to create Adam was moist and juicy, and this somehow proves something about baptism. That's the point I want to make. I want you to see that. All right, now I'm going to go back, and this will and that ends chapter three of Tertullian um, on baptism. Um, and then that brings us to chapter four, uh, the, the, uh, and the primeval hovering of the spirit of God over the waters, typical of baptism. See, once again, he's going to go back to the spirit of God hovered over the waters. The spirit of God hovered over the waters. The spirit of God hovered over the waters. See, that proves something. That proves something. Now, you could, we could ask, so when Jesus was baptized, was the spirit hovering over the waters? Like some may try to draw a correlation there. Um, yeah, okay. And I'm going to see, I don't even know if he draws. Now he does make some, um, yeah, well, we can't go into chapter four. We're at 54 minutes. I want to get into chapter four. We'll save chapter four for, for Wednesday night at Victory Baptist Church. But what I just want you, I guess the main point I wanted to spend 54 minutes working through all of this again is I just want you to see the weird, like, just randomly connecting one thing to another thing. And we've got to ask ourselves, when are we doing that? So when it comes to cross-referencing, here's what you have to do. First and foremost, if you're going to make a cross-reference, you have to first of all see, and this is what you look for first, is there anything in the scripture that you're looking at, the specific verse or that immediate context that is referencing another verse, something it's either quoted or it's alluding to, it's referencing, then then that, then that you kind of have a direct kind of cross-reference. You have kind of a direct cross-reference, right? Because it's mentioned somewhere else. And, and it, in other words, in the scripture you're looking at, it mentions Exodus or Psalms or Isaiah. It mentions it. Well, now you know that passage is being mentioned here, so they're being linked together. You don't have to do anything. All you got to do is recognize when it says 
well, it was written, or, you know, they, it says something, you're like, or as the prophet Isaiah said, like that, well, then that's a direct correlation. You're good to go. You're good to go. Now, now you may be perplexed and confused when you go back and look at the Old Testament passage and go, wait a minute, how is the New Testament author using this? And it is confounding and confusing at times. No question about it. We spent, what, two months, three months looking at how New Testament writers use Old Testament passages and our study on the book of Romans. You can go listen to like, it's like a six, seven, eight part study trying to figure it out because it is perplexing and there's lots of different theories on how they are used. But that's kind of a direct cross-reference. I'm in Matthew. Matthew clearly referenced Isaiah. So I can go to Isaiah and I can say clearly Isaiah, Matthew is using Isaiah. There is a connection between the two. Good to go. That. That's simple and easy, right? Then there are other times where you're like, okay, wait a minute. This mentions this subject, all right? Something similar is said over here. This is kind of more of an indirect. You have kind of a direct connection. This is more of an indirect. But what you have to look for whenever you come to an indirect is you have to go back to the, you have to look at the one that you're currently studying, the original passage that you're studying, and you need to understand its purpose, who it was written to, its context, it's historical context. It's textual context. Once you have that down, then where you think that there's another passage that may be related for whatever reason, you've got to go look at that and go, wait a minute. Okay, wait. This, I don't know if I can draw the correlation. There's a similarity. It's, it's somewhat similar, but this passage is trying to prove this point. This passage is trying. I don't think that these are related. As You have to at least call it into question. So I think you have direct, you have indirect, and then sometimes, guess what? You have things that are not connected in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to say no connection. You say, well, they, they have the same word. That doesn't mean they're connected. <laughs> that doesn't mean they're connected. It means they use the same word, okay? That, that doesn't mean that they're in any way, shape, or form referencing the same thing, proving the same thing, and that it's connected. And you've got to be able to see that. Using Genesis, because it mentions water, to try to prove water should be basically the age of water and the liquid should be venerated and see its authority and its, its dignity because the water supposedly brought forth life, even though it's God who spoke the life into existence, it's just bad hermeneutics. Bad hermeneutics. Now, what, what, what happens is this kind of stuff can look really cool. It can look really, it can look really interesting. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll just give you an example because I, I know some people are going to mention this and, and, and I understand that it is interesting, but I'll give you an example. We've, we mentioned it. Genesis, the spirit is hovering above the waters. Well, wait a minute. When Jesus was baptized, the spirit descends. So does, does that, is that, see, see, there's a similarity there. Well, does that prove anything? Does that prove anything? Uh, he goes on to say here in chapter, I think five, uh, or chapter four, I'm sorry, chapter four. Um, let's see, where does he say it? Uh Uh, let's see. 
I'm looking here to see if they say any way, shape, or form about this. See, thus the nature of the water, sanctified by the Holy One itself, conceived with all the power of sanctifying. Let no one say, why then are we, pray, baptized with the, with the very waters which then existed in the very beginning? Not with those waters, of course, except insofar as the genus indeed is one, but the very species very many. But that that is an attribute to the genus reappear. Okay, in other words, what he's saying here is like, some may argue, well, wait a minute, shouldn't we be baptized in with those exact same waters that were there? So he gets into a kind of an argument about, well, we may not have those exact water. Well, we can get a whole discussion about what he understood about water and, you know, the whole cycle. You have water, it evaporates, forms cloud. Okay, I don't know how he understands that whole concept there, here at this point. Um, Okay, it says, uh, and accordingly, it makes no difference whether a man is washed in a sea or a pool or a stream or a fount, a lake or a trough, nor is there any distinction between those whom John baptized in the Jordan and those whom Peter baptized in the Tiber, unless with all the eunuch whom Philip baptized in the midst of his journeys with chance water derived therefrom more or less of salvation than others. All water, therefore, in virtue of the pristine privilege of their origin, do after invocation of God attain the sacramental power of sanctification, for the Spirit immediately supervenes from the heavens and rests over the waters, sanctifying them from himself. And being thus sanctified, they imbibe at the same time the power of sanctifying. Albeit the similitude may be admitted to be subtle, are suitable to the simple act that since we are defiled by sins, as it were by dirt, we should be washed from those strains and water. But as sins do not show themselves in our flesh and so much as no one carries on his skin, the spot of idolatry or fornication or fraud. So persons of that kind are foul in the spirit, which is the author of the sin for the spirit is Lord, the flesh servant. Yet they, yet they each mutually share the guilt, the spirit on the ground of command, the flesh of, sub, of subservience. Therefore, after the waters have been in a manner endued with medicinal virtue, through the intervention of the angel, the spirit cor- is corporately washed in the waters and the flesh is in the same spiritually cleansed. So basically, hey, the spirit is, because it hovered over the waters in Genesis, it now... When you give the invocation, when you give the prayer, the, the, the power, the spirit comes back to the waters and it gives this medicinal, medicinal virtue. It's, it's medical virtue to wash you clean of sin spiritually. And now you're clean. Now you're, it's washed away. And again, uh, I thought he was going to quote some scripture. He doesn't even quote the baptism of Jesus here. He doesn't, which is just bizarre his whole thing is <laughs> the, the spirit hovered above the waters in Genesis. So that's connected to baptism. And it's like, how, how do you draw that connection? How do you draw that correlation? Genesis is not about baptism. Genesis is not trying to, and, and some people say, well, it's all connected. It, there is a connection in scripture, but, but listen, not everything, 
there's a connection in scripture that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof. But it doesn't mean that there's a connection and understanding a passage. Like you can just go grab any random passage and then make a sense of another passage. There has to be a either a direct cause or an indirect cause somehow based off context and the same purpose or the same subject, something similar. In this particular case, He's just, this is just the hermeneutic that he's using. And it's absolutely bizarre to watch. Absolutely bizarre to watch. All right, we'll have to stop there. And the next chapter is five. Use made of water by heathen. <laughs> oh, it gets crazy. It gets crazy. It gets crazy. All right, but we finished three. We kind of just read most of four, but we'll cover four tomorrow night at Victory Baptist Church. We'll, we'll probably be able to get through four and five, maybe even three chapters tomorrow night at Victory Baptist Church. Because right now, it's not like some serious hermeneutical argument. He's not even thrown out the basic scriptures people would quote, which is just fascinating to me, but that's okay. He's just making an argument based off Genesis. Basically, he's, he's, he is convinced that water has power in baptism, and, and so now he has to find something to prove it, and Genesis is where he goes to. The hermeneutical work here is so just crazy that it should, what I want it to do is not even focus on baptism. I want it to focus on how we have connected scriptures together before that we shouldn't have, and we made arguments that we're poor and that we can see those errors and stop committing those errors. You can email me your thoughts on hermeneutics and Tertullian and baptism to newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. All right, that, that took over an hour. Whew. Thought I was going to lose my voice a couple of times in there, but that's okay. We made it. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.